Have you ever been in a corn maze? I have not. But a couple, about a week ago, there's two guys on a radio show, and I don't remember what radio show I was listening to, but I think they were somewhere near Fargo, and they were talking about, you know, it's that time of the season when the farmers, some of them, create corn mazes. And I thought, you know, I've never been in one of those. That could be kind of fun. I, I think I might actually like to try that sometime, just see, well, what's that all about? And then it began to dawn on me that that could actually be quite frightening in one context, if there's no sunlight. Like, that would get scary. And then another thing just brought chills to my spine. You guys didn't experience here. Derek, you might have a number of years ago um, when it came to be the hunting opener, I believe it was, and up where we hunt, the fog never lifted. Do you recall that day? It never, and I don't mean it lifted later in the day. I mean from the opening post to the closing post, it was foggy, and you couldn't see from here to the end of the worship center. We kept waiting for it to lift, sat out there all day. Never lifted up there. And I got to thinking, imagine what it would be like in a corn maze like that. And probably you trip, and you think you have your orientation, you trip, you roll, you get up, and you can't see, now you have no idea where you are. You know, and I thought, well, that wouldn't be fun to be in a corn maze quite like that. But you see, if you were in that corn maze, and you know, I got into here, I know there's a way out. You would be confident there is a way out. You just don't know what it is. You just don't know where to go with it. So, I'd like to suggest for this morning that we are all born into a foggy maze. Every one of us. We are all lost. We're all confused. We're all trying to resolve this problem that we don't really know where we're going. We're pretty convinced there's a way out. We're pretty convinced that there's a place we ought to be going to. We just don't know how to get there. And as we pointed out in the last couple of weeks, in the midst of this fog, in the midst of trying to resolve these problems, we're all trying to find the same three things. And the way that we've stated it for now is we're all trying to fill in the same blanks. There's things about life we call, I don't get that, I don't have that, they're not connecting here for me. And whether we know it or not, we are all seeking God, healing, and community. We're seeking God because, as we know from Genesis 3, that our relationship with Him broke down at the fall. And Adam and Eve, as soon as they had eaten, became afraid of Him and began to hide. We're seeking healing because we know as soon as they had eaten, they experienced shame for the first time. They knew internally something is wrong. And we're seeking community because as soon as they had eaten, they recognized there's something wrong between us and began to cover themselves when prior to that it was made very clear they needed no coverings. And now a barrier comes in between them. So we're all 
in the same foggy maze, trying to figure out how do we fill in these blanks? Sometimes we fill in the blanks with the wrong answers. We put in a substitute for God, healing, and community. The evil one, he's put us in the foggy maze. That was his intention from the beginning. God, through his scriptures, is leading us out of the foggy maze. He's showing us, hey, here's where you need to go to get free from all of this confusion and this emptiness and this brokenness. As we began discussing last week, we just threw out as for illustration purposes. We threw this out. We used a tennis racket as our means of understanding what we're trying to say in this series. And what we have said is that, is that God, healing, and community, those are the framework that we need to restructure because that's what got broken. And once that has been restructured from it, we can form a grid work, which are the strings to the tennis racket, so we can then begin to put it all back in order so we can effectively have something with which to enter into life, be successful, win, if you will. Well, last week, we saw how truth, we began there, had been corrupted, and how seeking God was necessary in order to restore that part of our understanding. We seek God so that we might again come back to understanding truth, because that was the means by which it all got corrupted, remember? When the evil one came and said, has God really said? Has God really said? And now a lie was foisted upon them and they bought into the lie and we now are straddled with the results of that. Well, today, what I would like to do is, is if you will, add more strings from that God part of the framework, build more of the grid work, and again, basing it upon Scripture, I want us to see that morals have been corrupted and seeking God is necessary to restore that part of our understanding also, to, build, to rebuild that part of our grid work. And I say the morals have been corrupted because in Genesis 3, 4, we read, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's the lie. That's the truth. But we dealt with that last week. That was just, he, he's blowing up truth at that point. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so they eat, and now they're in a foggy maze. And they're in a foggy maze about this whole issue of good and evil. It's one of the things that motivated them to enter into the foggy maze. They just didn't realize that it was not going to be a good thing. So, I'm going to make three simple points about this whole question as to why we seek God in order to rebuild the framework so that we can then add the grid work and be able to be successful at life. Number one, we seek God because He validates our moral inclinations. He validates our moral inclinations. Here's what we're going to try and get at. God is good. Therefore, what he does is good. You look at Genesis chapter 1, right? And what do we, you, you know the story. 
After each time that he makes something, he says, God, behold, and he saw what he made, and it was good. It was good. And at the, after the end of the six days of creation, he says, he looked upon everything that he had made, and it was very good. Everything had a proper purpose, a proper order, a proper place. Everything worked well. Everything was designed for bringing glory to God as well as, as bringing goodness to his creation so that we could walk in the goodness of what it is that he has made. So God is good, therefore that which he does is good. And being made in his image gives us an eternal sense that there is this thing called good, there is this thing called evil. We're aware of it. We know that it's there. There's not one of us who tries to say, no, there is no such thing as good and evil. We start there. In fact, I believe it's the first, and we've touched on this before, I, I believe it's the first abstract understanding we have in this world is the understanding of good and evil. And it shows up when just little kids who can't figure out physics, they, uh, they don't understand science, they don't understand mathematics, but I'll tell you what they do understand. They understand a question of fairness. And if little sister gets a bigger piece of cake than the brother, he immediately will say, that's not fair. She got more than me. That's a moral assertion that there is such things as good and evil, and evil has been done to me. Little kids, they get this. Why? Because it's here. Because we're made in God's image, and God is moral in his nature, and we have incorporated or had that built into us, being made in his image. And so I believe it's the first abstract thing we understand. And we don't outgrow it. It's not like, oh, those were some, those were some childish ideas that we had. Absolutely not. You know how you know and I know we don't outgrow it? Just watch what happens to you next time somebody cuts in front of you in line. You may not say anything to them, or you may, in great indignation, call them out on it. But if you don't say anything, you know that internally it's going to just eat at you. And for some of us, it will be hours later, and it's still going to be bothering us. Why? Because that was unfair. <laughs> that was, that was a, a, a moral offense to me that somebody cut in line in front of me. Our politicians count on this, do they not? They constantly are going to point out for us that they are the morally aligned properly or properly morally aligned. They and their party, we do this. And those other guys, they're all terrible. And they never do anything that's good. And no matter what they do, they will criticize it. And tell you why it's wrong, because they are the morally just and upright ones. Our politicians count on this. They play on this. And we decide what, you know, one or two or three, however any parties are out there at any given time, which ones we're going to follow, because why? We think they are morally correct. So, we have moral inclinations. It is here, we cannot escape it. Well, I'd like, I'd like to suggest that man was created, as you know the account, with what I, which I would call innocence morality. Before the serpent came into the garden, 
they had a sense that things were good. Everything was just good. Life is good. Everything's a blessing. Everything's fine. They, and they can feel this goodness because they're innocent of anything else. It's when the fall happened that they now began to have experience morality. From innocence to experience. The evil one, he was right on this one. He said, the day you eat thereof, you shall know good and evil. And they did immediately. What they didn't know was that evil was not a good thing. That evil was destructive. That evil was painful. And now by experience, their moral perspective has added in the concept of evil. Before it was innocent, so all they had was a concept of good because that's what God would have for us. I think the Apostle Paul in Romans 16, 19, Romans 16, 19, I think the Apostle Paul would, uh, would have for us this, a, a sense of this. Uh, if you'd like to bring that up, you can. Romans 16, 19. When he said, in the last part of the verse, he said, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple in what is evil. I think in a very real sense, he's saying, guys, we, we need to get back to what it was like in the garden before we were experiencing evil. You need to be simple relative to evil or innocent relative to evil. It's another translation of the word, innocent. Hey, it's not to be a part of who you are. Well, we lived that existence once before Satan came in, before he came in and corrupted the whole thing. So that's where man was, but here is where we are now in the foggy maze. But here's the point, friends. Here's what I'm trying to get at. We all are aware of this concept, and we are all absolutely committed to this concept that there really is good and evil in the world. But here's what you need to grasp. Without God... Good and evil is not really a thing. We only have opinions. Without God, good and evil is not really a thing. We only have opinions. So if you're operating from, and I speak to this issue because it is pushing itself on us, and that's why I keep speaking to this issue. If you are operating from an atheistic worldview, you may, you may believe that you know what is right and what is wrong. You can't escape this sense of some things are right and some things are wrong. And so you make your decisions about what is right and about what is wrong. But if you are operating from an atheistic worldview that we are simply the outcome of chemistry, matter, time, space, all this stuff, that over time eventually we became to where we are, in fact, I saw a headline in an article just recently that says, when did we become human? When is it we really began to become human? So, <laughs> that's easy, the very beginning. <laughs> we were human from the start. But without God in your picture, you cannot claim that good and evil exist. All you can say is, well, this feels like this is good and it feels like that's evil, but that's just my opinion. Because somebody else is going to come along and say, well, I don't agree with that. How do you know who's right? You have no way. But more than that, you have no foundation to build anything as good and evil. It's just chemistry and matter. That's all it is. It has no moral, uh, uh, more, no moral content you can tie to it. 
And that goes true for the acts that follow. So that a Joseph Stalin, as an atheist, can kill 30 plus million of his people, can starve them to death. So what? We look at that as a great evil. He doesn't need to worry about it. Because from that worldview, hey, who cares? And he can decide what is good and what is right and, uh, and be exactly what Satan tried to push Adam and Eve to. Now, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. And I owe this to Amber Morstead, who, when I touched on this in, in, uh, when she was in my Sunday school class a number of years ago, she'd been in conversation with one of her peers at school. I believe that's the context from which it comes. Uh, she brought a question back to our Sunday school class. And she said, are you saying that atheists can't be moral? Great question. I love when students come up with questions like that because that's a thoughtful question. And it, mer- it bears some, some consideration. Let's be real clear. I am not saying atheists can't be moral. In fact, I'm saying just the opposite. Atheists can't help but be moral. Why? Because they're made in the image of God who is moral and he has infused that in us. They can't help it. What they can't do is tell you why anything is good or evil. They have no place to start. So in this thing that is inside of us, this moral orientation that we have, we must seek God because he validates that, that yes, that's a real thing. It's real inside of you, and what you watch is real, either good or evil as you watch it unfold. Those are very real things, but only can that be declared if God is in the picture. Otherwise, it's just opinions, just thoughts, just feelings. All right, number one, we seek God because he validates our moral inclinations. Number two, we seek God because he orients our moral inclinations. He gives them direction, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God's very nature, God's very purposes, God's very will is always moving towards that which is good in its direction. Because that is who he is. He is good. So what he does is good. And what he does is always opposite, away from, moving in a separate direction for a separate purpose than from that which is evil. And he says to us, in order to get this thing back in its proper place, in order to fill in the blank properly, if you will, on this question of morality, this this good and evil that I feel and I'm trying to understand it. He says, here, follow me. And I will always, always, always lead you in the direction of that which is good. And in that, he is our moral compass. He's our moral compass. He, he always faces true north. I guess that way. 
He always faces true north in terms of morality. He's spot on because that is who he is. It hit the news Friday night and, and kind of displaced everything else in the news and will for a season that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. You all know who she is. She's on the Supreme Court. And then all this, all this talk starts going. Apparently, I never followed her career. I never, I don't know, who, I, I know she's one of the Supreme Court justices. I don't know anything more about her than other Supreme Court justices. Okay, so got to understand that. Apparently, the day and age in which she became a Supreme Court justice it all, and, the, uh, and, and her history and her, her accomplishments, she truly was an intelligent woman, very accomplished. I mean, to get to the Supreme Court, you've got, got, you've got to have something going for you there. So her, her life story is one that, that I noticed what they kept saying. Is, oh, she's such an example to younger girls, to younger girls. She's been such an example to a generation of women who find that they can, you know, can now move forward. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And I can celebrate that. That people are finding encouragement from her life. That's great. But friends... When she is a staunch supporter of abortion, I gotta go, hold on a second. We've just entered a different realm. We've just entered a different realm and we better think very carefully about what we're talking about here. Because God has made it very clear in Genesis chapter nine that man is made in his image and we are not to kill one another. Oh, okay. You see, he orients us on this question. He orients us as to what is right or what is wrong in the taking of another life. And at times it must be done. But not all the time. And a lot of innocent lives have been taken. And uh, that's not good. So how do, how do you know? In this whole discussion, right, how do we know? Point. How do you know as to whether or not this issue is okay or it's not okay? How do you know? It goes back to who God is and His nature. It goes back to what He reveals to us is that which is good and that which is just. So we seek God because He orients our moral inclinations. He answers these questions for us. Now that's going to take a little bit of probably some work and some understanding as to who God is, so that as we try and sort these things out, it's going to take understanding his word, otherwise we're just going to be playing with our own opinions. But the answers are there. So we seek God because he validates our moral inclinations in that it says, yeah, it's real. We seek God because he orients our moral inclinations and he tells us this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And it always aligns with his nature and thirdly, we seek God because he satisfies our moral inclinations. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, we read this. The sea gave up the dead who are in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who are in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. 
They were judged, each one according to his works. You know, we're into a campaign season, aren't we? And now we've had, it has been such a crazy year. Has it not been just the craziest year ever that we've experienced? It is. It is. It just, you, can, you can just see layer upon layer upon layer and things that are just simply chaotic. And now we add in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death into this campaign season. Well, you know how that's going to blow up. You already know how it's going to blow up. What's the question? Do we replace her immediately? Or do we wait and let a new president appoint her? Okay. I want to tell you right now, folks, be ready for it. A whole lot of hand-wringing is going to be going on here. And each side of this issue is going to claim they've got the moral high ground. And I am willing to bet that if you look back to previous statements that each side has made, you'd find they're both kind of going against what they said before. Kind of depends on who's got the power and the this and the that at any given time as to what really matters. So there's going to be a whole lot of hand-wringing going on. And once it ever, however it plays itself out, you can be sure. Half the country is going to be excited and like, yeah, justice was done. And half of the country is going to be bitter for many, many years to come over how it played out. I want to speak to whoever winds up being the bitter ones. Because we have a thousand things of which we could turn bitter, friends. There's a thousand things that happen in life over which we could, we could turn bitter and angry and unhappy because we feel like morally, right, we have been unjustly treated. I think, I think about families. I've got two of each of my previous ministries, and I've mentioned this to you, but their pictures are on my desk if you don't believe me. I keep their pictures on my desk. I had a family from each of our previous ministries who had a young girl who was murdered. And nobody has gone to jail for those. Nobody has paid a penalty for either of those, of those murders. How do you deal with that? How do you as a parent deal with such a thing? That willfully someone took your child's life. You realize, to the atheist, there is no answer to that. The atheist has to live the rest of their life with no satisfaction that justice will ever be done. And they know, even though they can't come up with the grounding for it because they don't have God in their picture, they know in their hearts something was wrong when my child's life was taken. And they're right, something was wrong. And they know it because they're made in God's image. That's the whole point of what we're trying to say here. Believers, those who receive God's word and understand that there was a fall, God is working out redemptive history and there's an end. We understand that that loss of life to those children 
will receive just penalty. It will receive just penalty. And they were judged, each one, according to his works, the word says. And although the parents may never see it in this world, they can be assured justice will be done. And so we seek God because he satisfies our moral inclinations. How difficult it must be for atheist parents who have lost or had, whether losing a child or a, a business deal that, that out of which they were you know, denied their fortunes. I mean, all the different ways in which we have considered among mankind to hurt one another. For them to not have any confidence that it would ever be made right that justice would ever be done. But as believers, we know our God is just and he will deal with every one of these issues. And although it's incredibly painful, we can still have a sense of satisfaction that one day God will make all things right. So we seek God because he validates our moral inclinations. We seek God because he orients our moral inclinations. And we seek God because he satisfies our moral inclinations to know that one day it will all be put in order. So I want to wrap it up with just a few thoughts here, friends. I've gone through all of this because I have some very specific things in mind. First of all, I want to assure you morality is real. There really is right and wrong. They actually do exist. Because there are going to be some who try and tell you not. That there's no ground for them. And I'm telling you, based upon the word of God, that they are real. And when you feel something is right or wrong, you may, have, you, you may not always be clear as to what really is right or wrong in it, but those, those real feelings are because you have, you have a, a real means of, of, of perceiving, receiving that which is right and wrong. You do have that capacity inside of you. It's there for a reason. That's number one. Second thing I'd like to assure you, what is moral has not changed because God has not changed. That which he declared as good and right and righteous and just and holy a century ago and two centuries ago and three centuries ago still holds true. And regardless of where our culture wants to slide, whatever pit it wants to slide into does not now make it, oh, now we are enlightened. Sorry, that's not the case. It's not the case. So, black lives matter because all lives matter. And they all have always mattered. And so we embrace that. Not the organization, go back and listen to the old messages, but that truth, that truth, because they're all made in God's image. And in the context of our, our history as a nation, we had some catching up to do on that. There may be more catching up that we need to do. I'm not trying to have that, that discussion. We moved in the good direction 
We moved in a just direction to go and say, you know what? (laughs) Maybe the slavery thing wasn't a good thing. Maybe the segregation thing wasn't a good thing and we pull ourselves out of that. That's wonderful because we're coming in alignment with God, His nature, and what He has declared. That's good. But abortion is as wrong today as well as theft, idolatry, adultery, blasphemy, etc. As it has always been, regardless of which win mankind's ways to. Because we're going to see things put in front of us like, this is now good, this is good. No, 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 sorry. It wasn't good a hundred years ago in the eyes of God. It's not good now in the eyes of God. Because He, His nature, has not changed. And we're going we're gonna to buffet these winds, friends. Because there are those who want to take us, openly want to take us in a direction that takes God out of our natural, national discourse so they can decide what's right and wrong. That's, that's the reality. Third thing, God's going to set it all right one day. We can trust him. He is going to set it all right one day so we can trust him. I've tried to lay this out because actually what I'm trying to do, friends, is for us as a church to maybe come up with a fresh sense coming out of a, well, eventually, we're going to be out of it shortly, hopefully, but coming through the pandemic with a fresh set of eyes as to how we view what goes on around us, as to how the view, we view the people who are here with us. That's why I'm trying to help us to understand these things. To understand that others around you are fighting the same struggles. We're all in a foggy maze. So that, that means just this simply, friends. We need to reach out to the regulars who are here with us. You know, the regulars. Service gets done, you look around, you go, oh, I know all of them. Yeah, I've seen them. I may not know their names, but I, I've seen them all here before. Okay, we're a bunch of regulars here now, and, and I don't know how long it'll be before anybody new will show up in light of all the stuff that goes on. But we need to understand these regulars, if you will. Each, of, each one is here because they're trying to figure this out. They're seeking God, healing, and community. They come with needs, just like you're here with needs. So could that possibly encourage us to view one another with compassion, to care for one another, to not jump to quick conclusions about one another because somebody dresses differently than us or goes to a different school or from this town or that? Can we just put all of that aside and say, you know, the people who are here, we share a lot in common and God alone is the answer to those blank spaces we're trying to fill in. So I'd like us to be thinking about that for ourselves, but also when we see visitors, that we trust one day God will bring us visitors again to know they're coming in. Whether they know it or not, they may come in as as total atheists, but they're looking for something. Whether they know it or not, they're seeking God, healing, and community. And can we view view them with compassion? Can we reach out to them? Because, friends, we absolutely do have something that we can minister to people who are recognizing their needs and who are looking for something. Amen? Amen.